Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My guest this week is polling expert and professor of politics at the University of Strathclyde, Professor Sir John Curtis. Sir John, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Thank you. Now, it's been two years since Boris Johnson won his 80-seat majority at the 2019 general election. Now, obviously, the response to the pandemic is going to influence voter attitudes. But how has the national opinion changed since that election? Well, it's been a quite remarkable parliament in the sense that we've, so far at least not had any period in which the principal opposition party, Labour, has been ahead of the government in the polls. Traditionally, what we would expect in the middle of a parliament, and you know we're now very much in the middle of this parliament, uh, we would expect the opposition to be ahead, even if you know uh, they're not necessarily going to go on to win the next general election. So we've had movement since uh, 2019, but we've not necessarily had movement on the scale that um, we would normally anticipate. Um, Indeed, insofar as there was movement early on, the immediate impact of the pandemic and the lockdown in March 2020 was to see quite a remarkable increase in support for the Conservatives for a while. They were running uh, uh, over 50% in what was almost undoubted, what is often called in the trade, a rally to the flag effect. In other words, uh, when you get a public health crisis or some other major uh, crisis, the public are all willing the government to succeed and therefore there's a strong tendency to fall in uh, behind the government. And of course, that was probably also uh, exaggerated by the fact that at that stage, the Labour Party was in the midst of a leadership election, so there was no alternative. Um, And of course, the government had also just managed to deliver Brexit at the end of January. That very strong pro-Conservative mood uh, didn't last very long. It essentially dissipated quite quickly during May 2020 in the wake of the Dominic Cummins' now famous trip to Durham and then to Barnard Castle uh, to test his eyesight. Support for the government fell away back to much more, uh, 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 much more mundane levels, but we're still the government ahead of the Labour Party in the polls. Mm-hmm. The Labour Party only in the end caught up the government for what's proved to be the first time um, in the autumn of 2020. So that period when um, the government certainly many people felt was rather late in responding to the second wave of coronavirus The vaccine rollout was not, at this stage at least, coming down the track. Um, And in the wake of that, we did get to a position where support for the Conservatives and Labour was neck and neck. The wake of the vaccine rollout, however, and then subsequently in the wake of some fairly disappointing results, the Labour Party 
in the various elections held in May 2021, support for the government, you know, widened up, uh, up again and the government was enjoying quite a substantial lead, quite remarkably so for uh, the middle of a parliament. That again, gradually during the autumn, however, narrowed. It all started with uh, the lorry driver shortages and the petrol shortages and the supermarket shortages, uh, the hike in national insurance, um, and then more recently, the impact of the Owen Patterson affair and the various allegations surrounding that has got us back to a position where Conservative and Labour are neck and neck. Now, actually, whereas this time 12 months ago, they were both running at about 40% each in the polls, and now they're both running at about 37% each in the polls. So we've actually seen quite a substantial drop in Conservative support. It's eight points now adrift of where it was in December 2019. It's just that it's not the opposition that had necessarily uh, profited from all of this. So we see movement, but we you know we've still not seen the opposition as popular as we would expect. And despite seeing that movement, I mean, the, the signal property of the 2019 election, which was the way in which support divided very sharply between uh, Remainers and Leavers. In the end, 83% um, of those people who at that point in time were in favour of Brexit voted for a pro-Brexit party with virtually all of those voting for the Conservatives. And conversely, 83% of people who voted who at that time were in favour of Remain, voted for one of the parties that were willing to contemplate a second referendum. Um, that legacy is still with us. It's not as strong as it was. So in particular, as Conservative support has gone up and down since 2019, that movement's largely occurred amongst Leave voters. I think part of what's going on here is that, to be honest, if you voted Remain, but still voted Conservative in 2019, you were a very loyal, traditional Conservative voter. Nothing was really going to shake you from that loyalty. And we met, you know, the 20% or so of Remain voters that have continued to vote for the Conservative, uh, the vote for the Conservative Party in 2019 have proved remarkably loyal. In contrast, support for the Conservatives therefore has gone up to some degree amongst Leave voters and given support for the Conservatives is now down, it's, you know, it's lower now amongst Leave voters than it was back in 2019. It's only running in the high 50s or so. That said, it's still far higher amongst Leave voters than it was amongst uh, Remain voters. And the Labour Party equally, despite the fact that it doesn't talk about Brexit, doesn't want to talk about Brexit, hopes that, uh, hopes that people forget about Brexit, um, is and has made you know some progress uh, in regaining ground amongst Leave voters. It's still much more popular amongst Remain voters, about two and a half times so than it is amongst Leave voters. So that legacy of 2019 and indeed the 2017 election of Brexit shaping the character of support for the two largest parties, not as strong as it was, but it's still very much with us. Um, and indeed, probably also helps to explain why the Labour Party has found it so much more difficult to pull ahead in the polls in the way that previous oppositions have done, because getting back Leave voters has not proven to be that mm. easy for them. Yeah, well, that, that's a fantastic overview of uh, how Britain's changed so far since that's a really quite dramatic election. But let, let's just go into some of the details around 
why some of those changes have developed. So go, going back to the, the morning after that election, the prime minister said in his victory speech that he'd borrowed those votes from the Red Wall residents who he argued had lent him their vote and that he was going to use this parliament to make sure he had earned them and would go, go on to retain them. So how do voters in these primarily northern, northeast Red Wall areas feel that he's done so far? And do, do you think that he has done enough to keep their vote so far? Well, that's a much more difficult question because inevitably detailed polling of Red Wall seats is, is uh, rather more limited. YouGov have done some and they've shown that support for the Conservatives uh, has fallen. But it's not been clear from YouGov's polling that support for the Conservatives has fallen more markedly in red wall seats than it has done elsewhere. And perhaps we shouldn't be surprised at that. There, there is perhaps a bit of a myth about red wall seats, which is that uh, there's an inclination to believe that the Labour Party particularly struggled to hang on to leave supporters in red wall seats. The analysis that I've done with um, Stephen Fisher and Patrick English, which came out in the uh, Nuffield election study, uh, which was published just a few weeks ago, actually shows that you know, the Labour Party basically lost support amongst Leave voters across the board. You know, they lost, they lost them as heavily in Surrey as they did um, in Durham. Um, it's just that more of the Labour vote in leave-inclined constituencies came from leave voters, unsurprisingly, although even in Labour leave constituencies, only a minority of the Labour vote came from leave voters, but you know, it was about 40% of it, so it's quite substantial. Um, and basically, therefore, what happened in Red Wall constituencies is a phenomenon that was there everywhere. That is, the people who voted leave in 2016, but were still voting Labour in 2017, defected, uh, some of them to the Brexit party and more of them to the Conservatives. Um, uh, but that, you know, that was a phenomenon that was evident anywhere. So it's just that in Red Wall constituencies, some of which were, you know, Labour's majority was already relatively low, um, for partly because of longer term trends, um, that this phenomenon of Leave voters defecting from the Labour Party had an impact that you don't necessarily see elsewhere. But so therefore we shouldn't be surprised given that the conditions that created the success for the Conservatives in Red Wall constituencies in 2019 are much, are, were not particularly unique, unique to those constituencies, um, then we shouldn't be surprised that insofar as I've already said, support for the Conservatives has fallen amongst Leave voters, Labour has made some progress amongst Leave voters, that that is evident in the Red Wall constituencies, but it is no more evident in the Red Wall constituencies uh, than it is elsewhere. And in truth, probably if the Conservatives are going to hang on to Leave voters um, and to hang on to Red Wall constituencies, they, the task they face is not simply to appeal uh, to, to be successful in appealing to leave voters in Red Wall constituencies in particular, it is to hang on to their support amongst leave voters in general. And here, of course, you know, the interesting question is, well, what, to what extent is Brexit going to be regarded as a success by the time we get to the UK general election? And, you know, we've seen movement in that. Mm -hmm. 
albeit around, you know, what is still basically a division mm. um, around 50-50 uh, uh, during the course of the last two years. Now, again, one of the things that one needs to understand about the 2019 general election, the 2019 general election did not demonstrate that at that point in time, there was majority support for leaving the European Union. Mm. Um, after all, uh, only about 47% of the vote was cast for parties that were in favour of implementing the deal that uh, Boris Johnson had implemented, um, and around 52% was cast for parties that were willing to have a second referendum. And that, you know, was broadly consistent with the evidence of the polls at the time. It was roughly 52, 53% support for Remain. And as I've already said to you, mm. given that most people uh, voted along the lines of their Brexit support, you know, we're not surprised that the general election mm. should come out roughly along those lines. Now, that said, when after Brexit was implemented, you started to see the polls move back to there being majority support for being out of the European Union, although, of course, by this side, we were beginning to get polls to ask people not whether they would vote to vote remain or leave, but whether they would vote to join or stay out. Right. And, you know, there is no doubt that something like four or five percent of remain voters who would still vote to remain say, however, but, you know, I wouldn't necessarily vote up to rejoin. So once you mm -hmm. start changing the question, uh, shouldn't be surprised that um, uh, stay out uh, emerges as being in the lead. Right. Now, that said, however, as we got towards the autumn of 2020 and as you know, a degree of nervousness began to kick in about whether or not we were going to end up leaving without a deal, because remember that the trade agreement that eventually was implemented on the 1st of January 2021 was only unveiled on Christmas Eve 2020, a week before um, that at that point, you know, support for um, being outside the European Union had fallen. The conclusion of the trade agreement resulted again in opinion swinging back towards um, staying out. But the truth is that actually during the course of the autumn of this year, again, in the wake of the petrol shortages, mm. um, et cetera, and the lorry driver shortages and the problems about the pig farmers, et cetera, mm. Um, and really, for the first time, there being some public debate about, well, actually, is Brexit working out as people expect? We've actually had the opinion polls, despite the fact they're now mostly asking stay out versus leave, uh, showing marginal levels of support for, uh, for leave. Right. So almost probably one of the reasons why support for the Conservatives is now somewhat lower, and indeed is, is as low now in this, as it has been at any point in this parliament, is that actually some of the, some of, you know, it's only at the margin, don't, shouldn't exaggerate yeah. it, probably some of the support for leave has shaved off, um, mm. and that certainly doesn't help the Conservatives. And it does raise, I think, a, a $64,000 question about right. uh, the tactics of, you know, both Labour and Liberal Democrats over Brexit. They mm -hmm. are, in a sense, are adapting tactics that say, you know, yeah. Brexit's over, it's done, we accept it's done. Yeah, we'll hurry the government occasionally about the, about how well it's going, but, you know, we're not going to reopen the issue. Mm -hmm. um, now, even if you don't necessarily want to reopen the issue, one might want to argue that perhaps if you are really going to undermine the support of Leave voters for the Conservative Party, mm. 
then perhaps at some point you need to be willing to say that actually we think this has been a uh, this has not been terribly effective, not very efficient, and try to undermine uh, support for being outside the European Union. And that's mm -hmm. not a path at the moment the opposition parties are inclined to take. But you know, one way at least in in, in theory of trying to persuade Labour Leave voters in red wall seats uh, to swing back to the Labour Party is to persuade them that maybe voting Leave was not such a good idea. But as I say. That is not a position that, leave, uh, that the uh, opposition parties uh, or a tactic yeah. the opposition parties are inclined to take so far. So that, that election, it, as you say, it was fought primarily around Brexit, winning the, the hearts and minds of Leave or Remain voters, depending on which, which party you're looking at. But given that the UK has since left the European Union, what are the, the core issues that voters really care most about now? Ah, well, <laughs> depends on how you want to answer that question. Look, you know, I mean, there is no doubt the crucial central core question that still faces the election. I mean, as we are, as we are recording this today, <laughs> the question that most people are worrying about is what's going to happen to the pandemic between now and Christmas? Right. Um, are there going to be tighter restrictions? Are they going to be free to visit their family? Uh, what risks are they taking in, in attending or uh, uh, various social events between now and December the 25th? Should they be cancelling some of it? Uh, uh, should that trip abroad be cancelled? Mm -hmm. You know, look, the pandemic and the fact that we, you know, we still kept on having relatively high cases and now, you know, the, Omni, the Omicron variant uh, means that, you know, the health service, uh, our own individual health, the pandemic, its economic impact, is still the number one issue uh, uh, for the public. Um, but of course, um, you know, to, a lot of, of that um, is, 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 is a valence issue. That is, it's about how well the government is, is handling the issue and whether they're doing making the right decisions or not. Um, they're not necessarily um, issues which are going still to matter in two years time, or if they matter, it's going to be because the public come to the conclusion that, you know, the government, you know, either messed up or in the end negotiated the country successfully through all of this. Um, but how the public will feel about that in two years time is very difficult to tell. Um, otherwise, um, uh, in, I mean, you know, it's very difficult to argue that there's not, I mean, except that, you know, uh, the issue of immigration is is still up there because of the media, the uh, coverage of uh, the English uh, uh, the, the migrants across the English Channel, uh, so that's still trundling away. And the truth is, you know, when you look, if you if you if you, I mean, Brexit is you know, not being mentioned anything like as much. But when you look at the relationship between look at you know between relationship between people's attitudes and how they say they're going to vote, you know, as I said earlier, Brexit is still a major dividing line, right? And it's going to be more of a dividing line at the moment than people's perceptions about um, uh, whether or not we should be wearing masks and um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so uh, Brexit is still the quiet issue. And the crucial thing about Brexit, of course, is that you know, coronavirus is essentially a variance issue. How well is the government handling things? So it doesn't necessarily have a long-term impact. Uh, Brexit is a position issue. It's, you know, it's an issue that feeds into people's sense of identity, whether remain mm -hmm. or leave, people have views about whether it's right or wrong. 
So it's a legacy that doesn't necessarily disappear that quickly unless unless public opinion in the end falls in quite markedly in the direction of one side or the other. And that's the one right. thing that it hasn't done so far. Well, public opinion initially for the, the first response to the pandemic, so the uh, initial restrictions in February 2020, lockdown in March, and the uh, subsequent steps to tackle the virus, polls seem to show a high degree of support for the government, saying it's an emergency, people didn't know uh, what sort of risk the, the coronavirus posed to the public. But of, of course, that, that support for the government has waned and, and slipped. And of course, there's been recent headlines as well about the Prime Minister hosting Christmas parties at 10 Downing Street, whilst many families around the country were uh, barred from visiting friends and family or even dying relatives due to those COVID restrictions. So whilst the support for the government has slipped in the response to the pandemic, how much has the uh, impact of this particular story around the, the number 10 Christmas parties impacted the Prime Minister's favor favourability ratings? Well, it hasn't done the government any good, but I think you know, the, the truth is mm. the issue that really kicked home was the Owen Paterson affair. Right. Um, I mean, at one stage, um, if you were comparing what the polls were saying in terms of Paterson party support with what they had been just before the Owen Paterson story broke, at one stage, it was knocking about four points off the Tory uh, position. It's probably now settled down at about two points. And, you know, it, it's, that's been enough to, uh, because the government's lead wasn't that great already, to, to get us up to the even Stevens position that we've talked about. Um, it's not, I mean, the, the, the media will still continue to harry the government on the story. But, of course, there is a, there is a big difference between... The story about number 10, the, num the alleged number 10 party, quote unquote, and the Owen Patterson affair. In the Owen Patterson affair, we know that the decision to try and um, uh, uh, not uh, have Owen Patterson suspended was a decision made by the prime minister himself. And he's, he's acknowledged that. And he's acknowledged he messed up. Whatever else is or isn't true of the uh, party in 10 Downing Street, nobody has alleged that, prime, that the Prime Minister was present and therefore nobody has proven that the Prime Minister was party to the party. Right. Um, and so while it might be embarrassing that, that, that it happened, you know, I mean, was this the only instance of people who... I mean, the one thing that was certainly true of government at that point in time was that the uh, the stipulation to work at home for people who were involved in 10 Downing Street uh, managing coronavirus and equally in the Department of Health, um, you know, was not necessarily as uh, being followed in the way that, you know, being, fo being followed by uh, many people who were able to work at home. And, you know, whether or not this was the only instance of people who were being forced to work in the office for very long hours during the pandemic, yeah. whether or not this was the only instance of people perhaps, for, you know, question mark, forgetting the regulations and having a little bit of a celebration. Who knows? Don't know. We don't know. Yeah. But of course, 10 Downing Street is always going to be under much more scrutiny. So, um, uh, you know, I'm sure it's obvious that, you know, 10 Downing Street are um, 
shall we say, not entirely being open about what's going on. But I'm not, I'm not sure that this is one that's going to uh, have that much impact. Mm-hmm. The, the truth is that probably, I mean, uh, the real potential disaster that you know, it will be difficult for the government to avoid. One of, one of its great successes so far has been the vaccine rollout. Yeah. Um, uh, the public still think that the vaccine rollout has been good, and the public actually also buy into the narrative uh, that the vaccine rollout has been as good as it was because we weren't inside the European Union. That's yes. been one of the government's great PR successes. Um, if Omicron is really as bad as some people fear, mm-hmm. and that um, we are almost back to square one with a very fast uh, with a virus that's transmitting even more readily than um, uh, the previous uh, versions, and that actually the vaccine is not terribly effective, and we have to go back into in, 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 into lockdown. Um, that's going to be quite difficult for the government um, uh, uh, to survive, and yeah. uh, very difficult for the government uh, 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 to manage, because as it were, virtually everything that is acknowledges oh, well, you know, the economy will tank again, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That must be the, the great horror story uh, that faces the government. And, you know, if that were to transpire, you know, forget all the rest of it, that's going to make life very difficult for it. And, you know, we are just sitting on the edge of a, you know, of, of, a, of a story which at one end of the spectrum might be the beginning of the journey whereby coronavirus becomes something like the common cold, because that's one end of the speculation, even if it does end up causing a lot of people a lot of colds. Um, mm. And at the other end of the spectrum, really um, evading um, the vaccine to a very considerable degree and ending up with a lot of people in hospital, uh, etc. And we just do not know how that's going, that's going to work out. Um, but given this has been a government that's pretty much set its face going back into lockdown and is even now mm-hmm. saying vaccinate, 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 yes. uh, the latter uh, situation would be very difficult mm-hmm. for us. So you mm-hmm. know, I think all bets are off until we uh, know, hopefully sometime between now and yeah. Christmas, as to where we stand in the latest phase of the pandemic. So, so you mentioned just before the, the fact that the Owen Patterson affair and this whole Tory sleaze scandal quote unquote, has really seemed to cut through to the the public. Now, we're facing a number of uh, by-elections over the the next few weeks and months. And sometimes it's easy to overanalyze by-election results, particularly when it's midterm for a government. But what can we learn from the by-election in Old Bexley and Sidcup last week? We saw the Reform Party, formerly the Brexit Party, doing quite well in coming third. Again, could that be due to it's being a by-election and it's very targeted and local, or do you think in particular for that party, their sort of small C anti-sleaze platform is, is resonating with the public? Well, let's stand out more broadly, first of all, about Old Bexley and Seacup. Frankly, Old Bexley and Seacup is pretty much what you would have expected in a constituency of that kind, given what the national polls are telling us, okay? Mm. Um, so um, the swing against the government of 10% is rather bigger than the 6% swing that there is in the national polls, but it's pretty common for the swing against the government in by-elections to be rather greater than we would expect uh, from the national than expect the national polls. That's pretty much par for the course. So here we're seeing you know, the anti-government 
protest kick in in a by-election. Mm -hmm. uh, two, however, we should note that the increase in the Labour vote at seven points is, yeah, it's gained, it's bigger than the national polls, it's only four points in the national polls. Um, but um, I can find you nearly a dozen previous by-elections uh, in the last 10 years in which the Labour vote has gone up by more than that. So this is a very, very modest Labour performance. And it underlines the message of the opinion polls that the recovery, quote-unquote, the Labour Party under Sikir Starmer is indeed still very, very modest. Mm. Um, then, sure, the third thing we should then note is that the decline in the, so the 10% swing is, isn't more to do with the Labour Tory vote being down by 13 points than it is to do with the Labour vote being up by seven. And almost undoubtedly, that's a indication of the success of, of the Reform Party. Now, the, the Reform Party does, again, look at the national polls, it seems to be picking up a bit more of the Leave vote than the Brexit Party did in 20. Uh, 19, though, of course, that's not difficult, given that the Brexit Party didn't stand in half the constituencies in 2019. Yeah. And that will be partly what's fueling it. Um, the, a by-election in a constituency where over 60% of people voted leave is the kind of place where, and where there's a lot of Tory voters, is just the kind of place we expect the Reform Party to do relatively mm. well. Um, Reform Party, of course, is also, you know, uh, 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 complaining about the increase in national insurance, so we'll help try and pick up that. It was being represented in the constituency by its leader, Richard Tice, has demonstrated an above average ability mm -hmm. to, to uh, campaign effectively for yeah. reform reform party. So that kind of constituency, a and a by-election makes it easier for a small party to get its message across. It was being led, it was being represented by a relatively effective campaigner. Mm. So yeah, you know, the conditions are pretty ripe for the for the for Reform UK. But yet, even in with those circumstances, you know, it's nothing like on the scale that UKIP were. Were, were yeah. achieving, um, you know, before the 2015 general election, or indeed in some by-elections between 2015 and 2017. So to that extent, at least, you know, relatively small beer. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the big problem that Reform UK face is that, you know, Bre when Nigel Farage hit on the title Brexit Party, the cause was in the name. Yeah, yeah. Reform. What does what does reform mean? Reform what? <laughs> What do they what do they want? You know, mm. what do they want to reform? In what direction? And I think one of the problems they will face is that you know, too few few people know what the party stands yeah. for at the moment. Um, and given all, you know, in a general election, they will struggle at the moment is to get airtime. You know, they need to get to put in the kind of by-election performance mm -hmm. that means the uh, broadcasters feel obliged to be given to give rather more airtime, mm. um, therefore they can get their message across to what they're about. I think at the moment on that latter criterion, you know, they're still not making the breakthrough, and unless they can make the breakthrough, yeah, you know, the Tories will worry about them, yeah. and not unreasonably. And if it's a very very tight election in which the Tories might or might not be at an overall majority, you know, even losing two or three percent of the vote to another party could make all the difference. And, you know, one of the things we, you know, we absolutely have to remember about the next election is that the Conservative Party are friendless. Hmm. There is no other party in the current House of Commons that is willing to allow the Conservatives to remain in office. 
So if the Conservative Party fails to get an overall majority at the next election, and it's clearly short of three, two, six, Mm -hmm. there is no way, I think, in which it's going to be able to sustain a minority administration. And even if the Conservatives have more seats than Labour, they are done for. Now, it will face the Labour Party with all sorts of difficulties about how it negotiates and understanding with the SNP and with the Democrats, etc., etc. But I think the one thing is clear is that uh, the Tories uh, will be out. So it's, a, it's an asymmetric contest. Um, so yes, it's much more difficult for the Labour Party to win an overall majority than just the Tories, but the Tories have to get an overall majority and you know, therefore losing votes to Reform UK. Yeah. Small though they might be, could still be vital given that the Tories will face themselves quite a considerable chance to remain in office next year, after the next election. And ju- just on Reform UK briefly, um, the, there's been a number of rumours that they could uh, form a huge merger with the Social Democratic Party and the Reclaim Party under the leadership, possibly as has been rumoured, of Nigel Farage to form a new small C Conservative alliance. If that did happen and Nigel Farage was to lead that new party, do you think that could actually be a, a proper challenger to the Conservative Party to gain that small C Conservative vote? Yeah, and look, there is no doubt that Nigel Farage has been far and away the most effective campaigner uh, for uh, the Leave cause, you know, and the truth is that uh, Nigel Farage is the midwife of Brexit, even if uh, <laughs> Boris Johnson was the uh, consultant in charge. Um, and, um, yeah, if if all of, the, all, all of that were to happen, uh, then there are at least the potential, at least, for... Uh, there to be a significant challenge uh, to the Conservative Party from the leave end of the spectrum. And, you know, and as remind yourself, it's a you know, crucial thing we should remember. The reason why Boris Johnson won in 2019 is he was able to unite the leave vote, whereas the Remain vote was fragmented, even though the Remain vote was probably the larger of the two. So the fragmentation of the leave vote, um, not only to the Labour Party, but also to a revived Brexit Party Mark II, would probably represent potentially the biggest challenge that the, to a Conservative uh, success uh, at the next general election. So, yeah, we have to wait and see as to whether that happens. I suspect Reform UK on its own wouldn't pose a major challenge. Nigel Farage coming back, perhaps might, although of course he would face the challenge of persuading people uh, as to why they should follow what would now be Mark III Farage and right. why um, you know Mark II Farage left the field of play and Mark I Farage left the field of play. Mm-hmm. Uh, why should they believe that Mark that Mark III Farage shouldn't wouldn't leave the field of play? And indeed, mm-hmm. how indeed it was Mark II Farage leaving the field of play. Um, uh, in the 2019 election campaign uh, that threw the towel in to the Tories on that occasion. So, you know, he will have a few questions to answer, doubtless, if he does decide to uh, 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 fight the... Uh, re- restore um, the uh, Brexit Party Mark II um, in the coming yeah. weeks and months. And also, just to, to continue from that, you mentioned that the, the impact Boris Johnson's having. And as we move to a, a post-pandemic Britain, thoughts are naturally going to turn to who takes over from Boris Johnson as Conservative Party leader and even potentially as Prime Minister. So 
Who who would you say are the the favourites to take over as the Tory leader? Oh, I mean that's pretty clear at the moment. It's either yeah. Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss. Mm-hmm. Uh, Liz Truss is clearly very popular um, with uh, the, the potential selectorate, which is the Tory membership. Mm-hmm. Um, Rishi Sunak, um, in contrast, is the better known contender, and who has clearly demonstrated is a mm-hmm. consummate media performer and communicator but of course finds himself um, somewhat stuck as chancellor with uh, the fact that he's had to be the midwife to um, the fiscal and spending plans of a prime minister who is not a traditional fiscal conservative um, and who is much more concerned to use the state in order to try and improve the supply side of the economy uh, than he is to try and deliver uh, you know, a smaller state and lower taxes. So Mr. Sunak is uh, playing a somewhat difficult political high wire act um, at the moment. Uh, but these are the two contenders. And um, But of course, as we often know, it just depends often on who happens to be up at the very moment when the prime minister is no longer with us. It matters. Um, but look, at the moment, uh, Boris uh, Johnson is prime minister and he's going to remain prime minister. Yeah. What he's, he's only going to be out if and when we reach a position when um, uh, the, prime, the Conservative Party comes to the conclusion that they, he's going to lose them the next election. But we're not in that position at the moment. And Sir Keir Starmer, is, is he really going to be a proper challenger to the Conservative Party, be it under Boris Johnson's leadership or indeed Rishi Sunak or even potentially Liz Truss? Can he really bring the fight to the Conservatives or is he, again, not quite cutting through with the electorate? Well, this is far from Rachel, but Sir Keir Starmer faces two challenges. Hmm. The first is he has to persuade people not only that he could do the job of Prime Minister, but to persuade people to be excited about the prospect of him being prime minister. And second, he has to persuade people that he is that he and the Labour Party um, have a vision for the country that A, that they wish to buy into, and B, that they think the Labour Party can deliver. At the moment, Sakir comes across as the clever lawyer, but not somebody who's got a vision and he's, the Labour Party has given us very little idea of what it stands for. It's often been deeply reluctant to um, uh, tell us what it would do. It's, it it criticises the government readily, but is often very reticent at telling us what policy, policy platform uh, it thinks the government should be pursuing. And at some point, it's going to have to go down that path. So, so to, just to finish then, the, over the last few years then, the, the science of polling, it's, it's had something of, of a bad name to some extent. You know, may, many people say, oh, the polls never get it right. They fail to predict things like David Cameron's very narrow majority in 2015. Even some polls fail to predict the Brexit result, even Theresa May's hung parliament. You know, do, do you think that criticism levelled at polling and that the science of it is fair to some extent? Well, look, the answer to that is always that the poll should be taken but not inhaled. Right. Um, and as it ha- I mean, as it happened in 2019, they did pretty well. They told mm. us the story. And above all, they told us about the crucial movements and what was a very dramatic year politically and what was going on. 
and they got reasonably close to the final results. So sometimes they will get it right. Actually, they, they, they did pretty well in the Brexit referendum as well. People tend to forget that a majority of the polls doing the Brexit referendum told us that a leave would win. It's just that people didn't, people couldn't believe it was possibly true, and they therefore latched onto the polls that said the Brexit that maybe Remain would win instead. Mm. Um, uh, yes, t- 2015 was undoubtedly a mistake, and in 2017 the problem was that in trying to correct for the mistakes in 2015. Uh, uh, they overcorrected. So, you know, polls don't always get it right, mm-hmm. but um, they're the best guide we've got to what's going on. And, you know, it, it, it's because you have to be careful about the polls that at the moment, the only the, the, only, the only honest answer to two crucial questions, one is who's ahead at the moment, Conservatives or Labour, is don't know because the polls said it's close. And two, does this country want to be in or out of the European Union at the moment? The only, only honest answer is don't know because the because again the polls suggest it's too divided you know the polls tell us the crucial thing which is this country is divided politically down the middle between the two biggest political parties and between uh, being in and outside the European Union beyond that all else is uncertainty okay professor Sir John Curtis thank you very much for coming on the show you're welcome nice to thank talk you. to you Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.